Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Last time we saw how God, in surprising ways, watches over and cares for His people. We're going to continue to see something of that theme in this morning's text as we move into the beginning of Exodus 2. Um, I would note that we are going to be taking a brief pause here. Um, Next week we have a pulpit swap in the evening um, due to classes. So we're going to move the Lord's the Lord's Day, the, the catechism lesson to the morning because it deals with the Lord's Supper, which we're going to, uh, Lord willing, be celebrating soon. Um, and then we're going to take a, a brief pause to look at a few texts related to Easter, but then we'll come back um, to Exodus again after that. Looking at the first or the last verse of Exodus 1 and then the first 10 of the second chapter, then Pharaoh commanded all his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Amen. Beloved servants of Christ our King, last week we saw how God's people living in ancient Egypt were afflicted by a wicked and ruthless king. He was a man who feared the Israelites because they were large. And they were within his nation, they were among his people, but they refused to be identified as his people. They were set apart. He feared that they could be turned against Egypt as an enemy within. And so he tried to use the midwives, women devoted to the care and nurture of mothers and babies. He tried to use them to destroy, to weaken Israel. By killing the baby boys, that didn't work. That plan got undermined. And so then he, as we saw in our first verse this morning, commanded his people to throw all the the male infants among the Hebrews into the river. Now that's a level of cruelty and hatred which is seldom put on open display. But... 
It is a hatred which is harbored in the heart of much of the world. They hate Israel, which today is the church, because they hate the God whom we serve. Their lives are devoted to rejecting God while the church is devoted to serving God. And so every time they see the people of God worshiping God, speaking about the Lord, reflecting His very character, it fills them with wrath. It fills them with hatred because it afflicts their conscience. And so they long to remove that reminder of the true and living God. They long to destroy those who reflect God. It should come as no surprise when we hear the Apostle Paul say in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will be persecuted. We will be mistreated and hated in varying ways, in differing measures to be sure. But we shall be mistreated in this world until Jesus returns to remove us from the midst of those who hate us and to make all things new. Question is, how will we respond? How will we respond? There's a lot of ways we could. There's a lot of ways that are tempting. We could respond with camouflage. Seeking to blend in, seeking to give no offense, which inherently means silencing the gospel. Refusing to obey God's commands, just trying to blend into the world, but inherently that is a betrayal of our God. We can't do that. Or maybe we're tempted to respond in kind. They hate us, they slander us, they attack us, and so we want to hate and slander and attack them right back. But that's the old man, the sinful man talking. Shall sin abound that grace might abound? No, by no means. We can't live that way anymore. Our text shows us a better way. And it's a way that involves relying on the Lord, trusting that He can deliver us in ways that we can't even imagine. If only we'll keep our eyes on Him, if only we will trust in Him to deliver in ways that we can't. That's what we see in the deliverance of the infant Moses, as God powerfully preserves His chosen one. That's our theme. God powerfully preserves His chosen one. And the first thing we see about that, or see in that uh, theme is God setting forth that chosen one, that child, who is a child equipped for special service. That's what we see in the first two verses. Now, those first two verses seem pretty straightforward, don't they? They kind of set the context. They show us the circumstances. Look at that opening verse for a minute. A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Other passages in Scripture tell us that his name was Amram, her name was Jochebed. They marry, God blesses the union, gives them a son. There's other passages later in uh, Exodus tell us that before they had this son, they had another son. 
three years earlier, whose name was Aaron. They also had a daughter whose name was Miriam. Our text focuses on that third child who was born under the king's edict of destroying the male children of the Israelites. But there's nothing uncommon here. This was happening to multitudes of Israelites in their exile in Egypt. It's the detail here that sets them apart. A man from the house of Levi took as his wife a Levite. And therefore the child is fully and thoroughly a child of the tribe of Levi. Why is that significant? We have to remember who first read this account and what they thought of the tribe of Levi. Levi was the third son of Leah. But that's not what they would first think of when they heard that this was a full-blooded Levite. The first readers of this text were the Israelites who had spent years in the wilderness. And those in the generations following, they would remember the Levites as the tribe that were passionate about God and His honor, as the tribe that when all the others turned aside, when all the others devoted themselves to false worship, stood firm and defended the honor of God, even taking up sword against their brothers, against their cousins, against their friends, to defend the honor of God and to uphold Him. They would remember the Levites. They would think on the Levites as that tribe that was set apart, that tribe that would not receive an inheritance in the promised land because God was their inheritance, that tribe that was set apart to care for the tabernacle and later the temple and from whom would be drawn the priests who would stand between the holy God and His sinful people. The Levites were the tribes uniquely devoted to God and to His service for the sake of the well-being of the people of God as a whole. That's who Levi was. That's who this child was from the very start. And for the first readers of this text, that would have spoken volumes. Here was a child who from the start, by his very pedigree, was equipped by God for special service. Just as his whole tribe was set apart for serving God, so this child... He would have a unique calling. He would have a special relationship with God. He would serve God in a way that would not only honor God, but would bless the people. And that was the case from the very start. This is a foreshadowing of what was going to come. A foreshadowing of how Moses would be devoted to the care and the rescue and the well-being of the people of God throughout his life. But that foreshadowing is not about Moses alone. In a sense, Moses is an image of all of God's people. Later on in chapter 12 of Exodus, Moses would tell all Israel, you are to be a priestly people unto the Lord. Just as God has told us in the church in places like 1 Peter 2 and Revelation 1 and Revelation 5. Like Moses, the people of God are called to be a priestly people, uniquely set apart for the service of God, for the well-being of those who are called. That's us. That's our calling. Moses is, in a sense, an image of who we are to be. 
And more pointedly, he is an image of Christ. Because he too was perfectly qualified, perfectly pedigreed, perfectly set apart from the very first moment. The one who would be fully man so as to represent men, but who also would be fully God so as to withstand the punishment that men deserved. The one who would come from the tribe of David, the tribe of Judah, so that he could fulfill the promises to David, but who also would be the perfect priest after the line of Melchizedek. Moses' parents recognized that he was special. That's why verse 2 says that when she saw he was a fine child. Literally, it says, when she saw that the child was good. It's the exact same phrasing, the exact same vocabulary, the exact same everything as we see in Genesis 1. When God looks on his creation and sees that it is good, that it is good, that it is good, that it is very good. She looked and she saw that this was something that God had done and that was a blessing. And so she resolved to hide her son. Now that was not an insignificant decision. Pharaoh had commanded that all the male children of the Hebrews must be cast into the river. To disobey Pharaoh was to sentence oneself to death. But this young lady, Jochebed, As we learn from Hebrews 11, she and her husband Amram with her refused, not because they were rebellious, but because they were filled with faith, because they trusted the Lord, because they believed that this was God's calling upon them, that they had to obey him rather than the king, that they had to obey him no matter what the consequence. They put their faith not in the edicts of men, not in the ingenuity of themselves, but in the command and the goodness of God. And God used their faith in order to preserve His chosen one who was their son. However, three months is about the limit for simply hiding a baby. Some newborns, those ones that sleep through the night almost immediately, you know, the fabled newborn that almost never cries. Some can be hidden for a while. When they start to get a little bit worked up, mom can soothe them. She just has that ability. They're happy babies. They smile early. They sleep long. But even for them, three months is about as much as you're going to get before it becomes impossible to hide them. But that's a problem for Jochebed and her husband Amram. Because of that standing order of the king that the baby boys of Israel must be killed. Now older sons clearly were exempt, or Moses' brother Aaron would also have been killed. But newborns, well, they were to be cast into the river and... Pharaoh had commanded his own people to to enforce that. Understand, they would have recognized this as the defense of their country. They would have seen it as their patriotic duty if they saw a Hebrew woman carrying a little baby boy 
They would have seen it as their patriotic duty to do what the midwives would not, to snatch that child from her arms and to take him to the Nile and to throw him in, which would have made him essentially a sacrifice to their gods. Jochebed and Amram weren't about to allow that to happen. So they couldn't keep him in their home any longer. They certainly couldn't carry him through the streets. So what they did was entrust him to divine sovereignty. They entrusted him to our absolutely powerful king. Look at Jochebed's plan in verse 3. She took a basket. Only that's not the word for basket. The word is teva. It's a word that we find in Scripture only in one other location. It's used a number of times in that location, but it's only used in one other location, and that's Genesis 6 through 8. The word rendered ark. In other words, this isn't the kind of basket that you would go uh, collect your vegetables in. This was a specially woven receptacle which was intended to float. That's why she covered it with pitch and tar. It was intended to be waterproof, basically a floating cradle. I want you to recognize the ingenuity there. Pharaoh said, cast all the baby boys of Israel into the river. And Jochebed and Amram, we can do that. We'll cast him into the river. He didn't say we had to drown him. He didn't say we had to throw him in alone. They put him in a cradle that floats. They hid him among the bulrushes, among the the vegetation that grows along the riverside, which would have allowed them to stay close, to come and feed him. The sound of the river potentially obscuring his cries and thereby protecting the rest of their family should he be discovered. But of course, this is not a plan without some substantial risk. The Nile River was a busy place. Their communities were centered around the river because all of their agriculture was watered by the river, was cared for by the river. There were always people around the river and that river happened to be inhabited by some fairly large crocodiles. But as large as loomed the threats, they knew that God looms larger. And so they trusted him to care for their child. This is an act, friends, of pure faith. These parents loved their son. They believed that their son was special. They believed that God loved him. And so they sought to care for him by entrusting him to the Lord. Can you imagine how hard that was? That's not our instinct, is it? Our instinct is keep them close. If I'm going to protect this child, then I have to superintend every 
moment, every detail. That's the only way I can trust that it's going to happen, that the outcome's going to be good. But they knew they couldn't do that. If they did that, it would destroy not only this child, but their entire family. Because the child's cries would be heard, someone would come to investigate, and that whole family would have been destroyed by Pharaoh's order. The only way they could truly protect their child was to entrust him to the Lord. Mary and Joseph had to do the same thing, didn't they? The only way they could protect their child. They had to get out of the promised land. The homicidal maniac that was their governor at the time, Herod, ordered the death of all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Surely their instinct was stay close, stay among the people we know, stay among the things that we can control. But instead they obeyed God and they left. They trusted Him to provide in ways that they couldn't. They trusted Him to go before them into the unknown. And they did the same throughout Jesus' life, didn't they? Son, where were you? We couldn't find you. Where didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Later on, woman, my time has not yet come. You have to trust him, not yourself. His ways, not yours. Man, that's hard. But that's our calling too, isn't it? Our children are set apart. That's why they're baptized. We're going to talk about that this evening, Lord willing. But, but in that baptism, they are set apart from the children of unbelievers. They are set apart as those whom God promised to wash and cleanse and fill with the Holy Spirit. As, as those whom God promised to be a priestly people. And we see all the threats that could destroy them. Oh, there's no shortage of them in our culture. And we think, I've got to, I've got... You can't. I'm not saying free-range parent, let, let happen whatever will happen. I'm not saying that. But I am saying don't depend on your rules, your plans, your purposes, your superintending, your helicopter parenting to keep them safe, to guide them in the way that they're going to have to go. Don't, don't trust in you. We have to trust in the Lord. We have to believe that He who claimed them, that He who promised them, that He's greater than the crocodiles, that He's greater than the homicidal king, that He's greater than the unbelieving culture that surrounds them. That means the most important parenting act that you can engage in is the one that surely filled 24 hours of Jacobed's life, and that's prayer. Praying that God would care for that child. Praying that God would watch over and protect that child. Praying that's our most important parenting task. 
That's what they did. They entrusted him to divine sovereignty. And look at how God answered their faith. Understand, Jochebed couldn't hang out at the river. Would have looked suspicious, especially if that child started to cry. So she sent Miriam. Let the little girl go play by the river. What could be more common than a little Israelite girl out there playing by herself? But she was a spy. She was watching to see what would happen. And suddenly she sees an Egyptian coming down with friends to bathe in the river, but not just an Egyptian. Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter. What was the likelihood that she wouldn't notice that little tiny ark floating in the river? And what was the likelihood that she would do nothing to enforce her own father's command? She saw. She sent a servant to get that curious box floating in the river. She opened it. She saw one of the Hebrew children, a boy. But she took pity on him. She took pity on him. And Miriam recognized it. Understand. Miriam, doubtless, had seen her parents praying. Had heard her parents discussing this hard decision they had to make. That's not just Pastor Barnes getting fanciful and imagining. Hebrews 11 makes much of the faith behind this act. So when Miriam saw, this little girl saw the compassion on the face of Pharaoh's daughter, she knew this was an answer to prayer. This was God protecting this child in the most unexpected, unforeseeable manner. Pause there a minute. Are we preparing ourselves to trust God to do the unexpected? So often we pray with the greatest specificity. Lord, please do this in this way at this time. Please, this way, by the way. We think... And that's natural, right? We think we know exactly what the outcome ought to be, what it ought to look like. How often does that actually happen, though? And it comes about the way we expected, the way we anticipated. It's pretty rare, isn't it? And it's rare in the history of God's people. I submit to you that if we want to really trust in the Lord, if we want to really follow Him and believe that He will provide what we need We need to be spending an awful lot of time looking at how God has cared for His people. We need to be spending an awful lot of time reading this account of the history of God's people and seeing how suddenly and surprisingly and unexpectedly He answers the prayers of His people, meets the needs of His people, so that we won't be shocked, So that we won't fail to recognize that this is in fact the hand of God. And we need to be spending a lot of time in prayer. 
We need to be spending time in prayer, not just about the big stuff, but about the little things, the little decisions, the little dilemmas. So that when things unfold the way they unfold, we will recognize this is God at work. God superintending these little elements of our lives. So that when the big surprising things happen, we won't be shocked. But like Miriam, we'll recognize that simple look of compassion on the face of Pharaoh's daughter. And we'll act. She acted. She said, would you like me to go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse him? That's what she means there. She said, shall I go and call you a nurse from among the Hebrew women? She was, she was asking if she should go get a, a mother to feed this child who was clearly hungry. That was an act of faith. Pharaoh's daughter could have been set in a trap. Could have been waiting to see which woman comes down so she could say, you must be the mother. You need to be arrested. You need to be punished. But but no. God was answering prayer. God was providing for the safety of His chosen one. Pharaoh's daughter said, go. And so she went. She brought Moses' own mother. And look at what God does. Look at how amazingly, surprisingly, God provides for His chosen servant. Not only does His own mother get to care for this little boy for the foreseeable future, in her own home, under the protection of the edict of Pharaoh's daughter, there's only one who outranks her. She gets paid to do it. How cool is that? Only God could write that script. Not only does she not have to kill her son, which the king had commanded, but she gets paid to raise him up in her own home and understand what that means. That means that Moses, for the earliest years of his life, the most influential years of his life, is going to be catechized. Those lessons you get when you're too young, when you're, when you're of those years that you can't even remember, they stick. Mom and dad, don't forget that. If the lessons you're teaching them are you fight to get your own way, you bicker and you complain and you gossip, and you, that'll stick. But if the lessons they're getting when they're babes in arms, when they're crawling around on the floor, where they're you know, kind of invisible. If the lesson they're getting then is that God is sovereign and God is good, and when I have a spare moment, I sing the praises of my God, that'll stick. Raise them up in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Moses did not depart from it, even though his catechizing was concluded long before our formal catechizing ever begins. God provided. And God ensured that he would be embraced with this comprehensive nurture. 
the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. How perfectly God was providing. His earliest, his most formative years, he's catechized as a Hebrew. He's catechized as an Israelite. He's catechized as one of the priestly people of God. And then he is sent out to Egyptian school. Where he will learn all the ways of the Egyptian royal court. Which was exactly the schooling that God wanted him to have. So that later he would be perfectly equipped to come and deliver his people. Again, an image of Christ, who also would be born during a time of severe oppression for God's people, who also would have to be rescued by God's intervention from an evil tyrant bent on his destruction, who also would be nurtured in the land of Egypt, and who also, in a much more fulsome and powerful and eternal way, would rescue his people from their slavery. Moses is an image of Christ. He's telling God's people, this is how I'm going to deliver you. This is how I'm going to raise up your Messiah, your Savior. But it's also a source, this story is also a source of assurance for us. Because in this account we see clearly God cares. For the care and the preservation of his people. Certainly for our children. Mom and dad, I don't care how careful you are. There's stuff you can't control. There's illness, there's temptation, there's the inner sinful nature that you can't root out. God can, you can't. But there's so much more too. The accident that we could never foresee. The disease that we could not head off. The economic collapse that we could not see coming. You name it. We're, it's out of our control. But it's not out of God's control. And not only can He preserve us in the midst of it, but He's able to turn it all for our good so as to Not just protect us, but equip us perfectly for the work that he has ordained. How amazing is our God. And therefore the calling of this text, brothers and sisters, is the simple, straightforward, but essential calling to trust him. Not me. Not my family. Not my country. Not my great people. Not my favorite theologian. But the Lord. He's the one who has mapped out every single detail of your life. He's the one who will get you through every single challenge. He is the one who will use all of the hard things of your life to equip you perfectly for the work that he has ordained. Only he can do it. So we need to trust in him. We need to cultivate that trust in Him day by day. And He will never let us down. God powerfully preserves His chosen one. And that's us. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we do stand in awe of the greatness of your power and your grace. And we pray that you would give us the faith to trust in you. You know our inclination to rest in ourselves, to rest in our ways, to rest in our plans. But they're not enough. They're not sufficient. You are the sufficient one. You are the one who is always good. And so we pray, Father, that you would teach us to trust in you and that you would give us eyes to see the ways in which you're working for our well-being and our good. Father, we pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.